Would you now please join me in prayer? Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, Your unworthy servants, give You humble thanks for all of Your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all whom You have made. We bless You, thank You for our creation, for our preservation, for all of the blessings of this life but above all, for Your immeasurable love and the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You also for the means of grace which we participate in today and for the hope of glory. Almighty God and Father of all mercies, we have many needs in our church and in our community and in our world. And so we come humbly before You and ask for Your help. We pray for the people in Andover and in the surrounding area who were affected by this tornado on Friday night. We pray that You would provide for their needs. We thank You that, to my knowledge, nobody was seriously injured. But we pray that through this tragedy, that the people who were affected would look to You. Proverbs teaches us that You are the God who has wrapped up the waters in a garment. You have established all the ends of the earth. You are the God who has gathered the wind in Your fists. You are a sovereign God, and yet You are a good God. And so I pray that the people who were affected by this tornado would look to You as their anchor in the storm. To You for eternal security and safety which only You can provide. I pray also for believers in the community that they would come around them, that they would show them the sacrificial love of Christ in tangible and practical ways. Father, we pray for those who are suffering with chronic illness or cancer in this church. I pray for Jan Steinert, for Amanda Olinger, for Cindy Spangler, for Andy Hawkins, for Helen Day. I pray that You would provide healing and encouragement for them. And I pray that They would not be like King Asa who only sought help from physicians and not from the Lord, but that they would look to You. And that as they look to You in faith, that while their outer self is wasting away, that their inner self would be renewed day by day. Father, we pray for those who are grieving the loss of a loved one, especially for Bill Young, and the loss of his father, for Jim Gustafson, and the loss of Nancy. Grant them comfort and peace. As we face death as a church, as we hear the news of people who have died, 
we pray that You would also teach us, Father. Wisdom teaches us in the book of Ecclesiastes that it is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. The death of those that we love reminds us that death is the destiny of us all. And therefore, the living should take it to heart. So I pray that we would take it to heart, Father. I pray that there would be nobody in this place today who would see death until by faith they have seen Jesus as their Redeemer. Then let us depart in peace according to Your Word. Father, we pray for those who are in positions of authority in our country and in our state. The book of Proverbs teaches us that the king's heart is a stream of water in your hand and that you turn it wherever you will. And so I pray for Joe Biden, for Governor Kelly, that you would direct their hearts to govern with wisdom that they would deal in righteousness, justice, and in equity. I pray that we would do the same, Lord, that we would be people who live with righteousness, justice, and equity. And so I pray as we come to Your Word this morning that You would teach us the ways of wisdom, that we would live for Your glory and that You would shower Your blessings upon Your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, would you please turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. We live in a world with many rival voices. Voices telling us how to live our lives. Voices in our family. Voices from our friends. From our teachers. Our classmates. Our co-workers. Voices from Wall Street. From Madison Avenue. From Hollywood. Voices telling us what the good life is and how to obtain the good life. Many voices. But the Bible teaches us that there are really only two voices when we boil it all down. The voice of wisdom and the voice of folly. And the admonition to us is very clear. We need to listen to the voice of wisdom in a world of rival Voices. That's basically my sermon in a sentence. We need to listen to the voice of wisdom in a world of rival voices. That's the basic message of Proverbs chapters 1 to 9. We're going to spend 11 weeks in these nine chapters during the month of May and the month of July. In June, it will be Missions Month and we'll be covering different uh, passages. But in May and in July, we're going to be in Proverbs 1 to 9. Proverbs 1 to 9 is basically a really long introduction to the rest of the book of Proverbs 
And it is an invitation, by way of introduction, to pay attention to the wisdom that we see contained in the rest of the book. A call to listen to the wisdom found in Proverbs. And basically, my sermon this morning is just that. It is simply an invitation that over the next number of weeks and also in your own life, your own time in God's Word, that you would set aside space to listen to the wisdom found in the book of Proverbs. The wisdom that is found in the book of Proverbs is not simply worldly wisdom, the wisdom of the world, things that anybody could know at any time. It is specifically the very wisdom of God's Word. Hebrews 1 The first verse of Hebrews 1 is familiar to many of you. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. He spoke through the prophets. That is very clear. That's what Hebrews 1 goes on to say. But I want to put forward to you today that He also spoke through the Proverbs. Jeremiah 18.18 speaks of the enduring quality of God's Word. And it says this, The law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. The teaching of the priest, the wisdom of the sage, the word of the prophet. Do you see what he's doing there? He's lumping together the wisdom from the sages together with the Word of God found in the law and the prophets. The counsel from the wise in the book of Proverbs is God's Word for our lives today. And we would do well to listen. That's the basic message. But let's now look at our passage together. We're going to be reading the first 19 verses of Proverbs chapter 1. So if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. 
Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our passage this morning, you can see through the headings in your translation, is divided into two parts. Verses 1 to 7 give us an introduction to chapters 1 to 9, but really an introduction to the whole book of Proverbs. Verses 8 to 19 are the first lecture of a father to his son, and they introduce to us these rival voices that we will encounter throughout the book. Rival voices of a father and sinners here. We'll see next week the rival voices of Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, but they give us an introduction to these rival voices. But this morning, instead of simply walking verse by verse through this passage, I want to address five questions to help us tee up our study in the book of Proverbs. Five questions about Proverbs in general found in this book and about wisdom in general. The first four questions come from verses 1 to 7. The fifth question from verses 8 to 19. But let me just walk you through the questions and then we'll seek to answer them. The first question is a question regarding the author. It is, where do the Proverbs come from? Where do the Proverbs come from? The second question is regarding the audience. Who are the Proverbs for? The third question is a question about the aim of Proverbs. What are the Proverbs for? The fourth question, one of the argument of the whole book, how do we get wisdom? And then the fifth is a question of application. Why does it matter? The first question is about the author. Where do the Proverbs come from? This is on the screen. They are God's words from Solomon. God's words from Solomon. In verse 1, we see this very clearly. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Proverbs was largely written by Solomon. The book of Proverbs is divided into seven smaller books. The first two of them, which make up the bulk of the book of Proverbs, um, or I, I should say the first two and then also the fifth. Um, so three of the five books which make up the bulk of Proverbs were written specifically by Solomon. There are two smaller books that are the sayings of the wise which Solomon himself likely collected. So he's responsible for five of the seven books. There are two small books at the end one written by Agur and the other by Lemuel, um, which also make up the book of Proverbs. 
But the main thing is that Solomon is the principal offer. If you read 1 Kings 3-4, to we see repeatedly that King Solomon was eminently wise. The whole world seems to have caught wind of his wisdom. The Queen of Sheba traveled to Israel to see and to hear of Solomon's wisdom. And when she came, she was not disappointed. Even in the New Testament, Jesus tells us that Solomon was wise. 1 Kings 4 tells us that he spoke 3,000 proverbs. So it's no surprise that the words of wisdom recorded in the book of Proverbs come principally from Solomon. Now, those of you who were raised in the church or are familiar with your Bible have maybe a looming question in your mind because you know that Solomon died a fool. How could a man who died as a fool be the author of one of the main books of wisdom in our Bible? Well, it's because he didn't live according to what he taught, which is a problem that many of us face. But this doesn't call into question his authorship, simply his application of what he wrote. And we've already seen, like I said at the beginning, that the words that he wrote in this book are the very words of God. And so there's a sense in which the ultimate author of Proverbs is God, but he's speaking through the words of Solomon, and so we would do well to listen. Let's now turn to our second question, a question about the audience of Proverbs, which speaks to its relevance. Who is this book for? The answer is the Proverbs are for God's people. Normally, in the ancient world, whether that be in Egypt or maybe it would um, be in Babylon, um, places where kings would collect wise sayings and compile them in a book like Proverbs. That was something that happened in the ancient world. Normally, when a king would do that, at the very beginning of the book, he would address the book to his son, the prince, so that his son, the future king, would know how to rule well whenever he came to take the throne. But in Proverbs, Solomon doesn't address one of his sons. He doesn't address, for example, Rehoboam, who was the son who would take the throne after him. And the book doesn't really deal simply with how to rule well. It deals with a lot of other things too. Also notice that a lot of the Proverbs come from the mouth of a father speaking to his son. Look at verse 8 for example, which we read earlier. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. The wisdom in Proverbs is disseminated in godly and yet very ordinary homes. Not in the palace. In very ordinary homes. Fathers and mothers 
throughout all of the nation of Israel are teaching their sons and their daughters wisdom. We know from Deuteronomy 6, that classic passage on parenting that we talk about in our child dedication class, um, however many times a year we offer that. We know from that passage that the law in Israel was disseminated through parents teaching their children the commandments. We read, You shall teach them the words diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. All of life is an opportunity for parents to teach their children the law of the Lord. Well, it seems like that same thing applies to wisdom. Parents teaching all of the children of Israel the wisdom of God contained in the Proverbs of Solomon. It seems like what Solomon is doing is kind of turning the way that wisdom literature was normally transmitted on its head. Instead of it only being for princes, it is for all of the people within his kingdom. As the king, he wants his regal wisdom, which is really wisdom of God, to mark the lives of everybody in his kingdom. He wants the wisdom of God to mark the lives of all of the people of God so that the nation can give attestation to the glory of God. We know that in 1 Peter 2, Peter calls the church not only uh, a nation of priests, he calls us a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. In Christ, we have our King, which Matthew 12 tells us was greater than Solomon. And so, therefore, if we belong to Christ, guess what? We're royalty. We are princes, so to speak. And the Proverbs teach us how to live as royalty, as sons and daughters of our wise king. So in general, Proverbs are for all of the people of God, and therefore, they are for you. But, did you notice in verse 4 that there's a particular group that's singled out? we read that the Proverbs were written to give prudence, that is, shrewdness, to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. That's what the ESV says. The New American Standard says to give prudence to the naive. Or the Christian Standard Bible says to teach shrewdness to the inexperienced. You can see that the translators are wrestling with how to translate this particular Hebrew word. The simple or the inexperienced in Proverbs are typically young people, get this, who haven't yet figured out or determined which path they are going to walk on in their lives. 
So they are the most vulnerable of all to the rival voices in our world. Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, whom we'll be introduced to later, they are crying out, vying for the attention of the simple, the inexperienced, the youth. They are so vulnerable because they could go either way. They could listen to the voice of wisdom or the voice of folly. They could listen to the godly counsel of those in their family or the wicked counsel of their friends. This is the target audience in the book of Proverbs, and it is a critical audience for us today. And so let me just say, if you were a young person here this morning, maybe a middle school student, a high school student, maybe a college student, or a young adult, the book of Proverbs is for you. I invite you to listen up this morning but also to come prepared to hear a word that was written with a particular intention of addressing you at this formative stage in your life. But this book is not only for the youth or the inexperienced. Verse 5 tells us that it is also for the wise. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. Although listening to wisdom in your formative years is critical, it may even be the main audience that Solomon has in mind as he is writing. Verse 5 seems to teach a very important lesson to the rest of us who are maybe no longer quite so young. And that lesson is this. We're never done learning. We're never done learning. And as those who are further along in years, who have a few more birthdays under our belt, we have a responsibility that we've seen modeled here to teach the younger generation the wisdom that is contained in the Word of God. And so we need to be lifelong learners as we seek to be lifelong teachers as well. We've seen where the Proverbs are from and who they're for. Let's now consider our third question, what are they for? And this is a question of aim or a question of purpose. The answer to this question is probably obvious by now. The Proverbs are for gaining wisdom. But we must ask, what exactly is wisdom? Now, I'm not going to define it um, in detail this morning because there's a sense in which these 11 weeks are going to be giving us a definition of what wisdom is. But I do want this morning to give an initial answer to the question, what is wisdom? Let me begin by saying what it isn't. Wisdom is not simply knowledge. I think that we're prone to think that way, that the wise person is the one who knows a lot. Wisdom is not simply knowledge. Now, don't get me wrong. Knowledge is necessary. To be wise, you have to think 
You have to use your brain. Look at verse 2. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. We see the same idea in verse 6. Look there. To understand a proverb and a saying. The words of the wise and their riddles. Wisdom deals in words and it requires thinking. Knowledge is necessary, but this is the point that I want to make. Although knowledge is necessary, it's not sufficient. Wisdom moves beyond knowledge to the application of knowledge. Wisdom at its core, if I can put it another way, is skill. Wisdom is skill. We see this throughout the Old Testament. Think of the people who constructed the tabernacle. They are said to have had wisdom. Why? Because they had technical skill in their craftsmanship. That is called wisdom. Those who rule well, those who judge well, are said to have wisdom because they have skill in governing. It is applied knowledge. And in the Proverbs, wisdom is skill as well. But it's not so much technical skill. And it's certainly not limited to skill in governing. It's more of a moral skill. So wisdom is skill, but in Proverbs it's specifically dealing in morality. A skill at living well in God's world, in His moral universe. So in verse 3 we read, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. These are terms of morality. They certainly could apply to governing. That's why I prayed for our ruling governors and our president that they would rule in this way. But it's not limited to governing. We'll see that in verses 8 to 19. This concept of justice is used for obtaining gain through unjust means. So not just governing, but morality in all of life. To sum up where we've been so far, we've seen that we live in a world of rival voices telling us how to live our lives, and we need to listen to the voice of wisdom. But how do we gain wisdom? That's the question before us now. And the answer is clear. We need to fear the Lord. This comes out in verse 7. If that's not already underlined in your Bible, go ahead and underline it now. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is how Proverbs 1-9 to begins, with the principle of wisdom. And notice that it ends in exactly the same way. Leave your finger there in Proverbs 1 and turn over a few pages to the end of the prologue in Proverbs 9. Here we have Lady Wisdom making her speech. Lady Folly will start hers afterward. But at the end of Lady Wisdom's speech, at the end of the prologue of Proverbs, we read, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So Proverbs 1, 
Proverbs 9 begin and end in the exact same way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is the main argument of the prologue. This is the main argument of the whole book. What's the last thing we read about the wise wife in Proverbs 31? She fears the Lord. It is the main principle of the book. We only come to gain wisdom, which is what Proverbs is calling us to get, through the fear of the Lord. But what is the fear of the Lord? Like the concept of wisdom, there are many aspects in the Bible to the fear of the Lord. It pertains to living upright lives before the Lord. It involves turning away from evil, as Job 28 28 says. It involves obedience to the law of the Lord. It involves reverence in our right worship of the Lord. But here in Proverbs, I think there is a slightly different nuance that's being highlighted than all of that. How do we get at the nuance? We get at it through looking at the way Proverbs are put together. Hebrew poetry operates with parallelism. So you have line A and then line B, which is parallel to it. And that second B line expands or explains the first line. So let's just look again at verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom. That second line throws light on the first line and teaches us that part of what it means to fear the Lord is to not despise wisdom. Or consider Proverbs 15.33. Proverbs 15.33. It says, The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. So very similar to what we've seen here. Notice the B line, the parallel line. And humility comes before honor. So to gain wisdom, we need to fear the Lord. And fearing the Lord involves humility before the Lord. Fearing the Lord is really a posture. A posture of humility. In other words, if we want to gain wisdom, let me just put it really simple. We need to realize that the Lord is God and we are not. Really simple. But actually in our lives, very hard to apply. The Lord is God and we are not. All wisdom, therefore, comes from God, not from man. We live in the modern world. And modern man, ever since Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, has placed man as the starting point for all knowledge. Man is the starting point for all knowledge in the modern world. But the starting point of the wisdom of God is realizing first that we can't start with man. Man is not the measure of all things. In fact, man is being measured by God. When we come to grasp that, 
we have attained the fear of the Lord and we're ready to begin gaining wisdom from God. The fear of the Lord is an openness to learn from God, to be instructed from Him, to listen to Him, to not think that we know better than what God says in His Word. It's a teachable spirit. A spirit that, to quote Proverbs 3, trusts in the Lord and leans not on our own understanding. A spirit that depends upon God. If we don't have the fear of the Lord, we can't even begin to attain wisdom from God. That's the basic argument of the book. Are you struggling with the fear of the Lord? Do you want to learn how to fear the Lord? Do you want the humility that's needed to attain wisdom? Let me give you as a Christian a practical application to help you in that. Just consider the cross. Consider why it was needed. And maybe that will bring you to the humility that you need. On the cross, we see the wisest man who ever lived dying in the place of fools like you and me. At the cross, we see our greatest need. It draws our attention away from ourself and puts our eyes up to see the One who was hung up on the cross and to see His Father who sent Him there out of His great love for us. On the cross, we see the infinite wisdom of God. The wisdom that we need. Let's now turn to the last question. Why does all of this matter? This is a question of application. I've said throughout that we have rival voices that are speaking to us in our world. Rival voices. We get to 8 to 19, we see those voices speaking to the simple, speaking to the youth. We hear the voice of the Father in verse 8, speaking words of wisdom. We hear the voice of sinners, a gang, speaking words of folly. Let me just draw your attention to this. Look at verse 8. There's, there's three times the Father addresses His Son. Verse 8, Hear, My Son, your Father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. That's the same thing we saw back in verse 5. There is a call to hear. This is the voice of wisdom calling to His Son. In verse 10, there's also the voice of the Father warning His Son. My Son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. In verse 15, there's more warning. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. Do you see the address? The call to listen? The call from wisdom from this Father? In verses 11-14, to 14, we hear the voice of sinners. Verse 11, they say, Come with us. Let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. A sample in verse 13 gives us more. They make a promise. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. 
Here is the real-life application of Proverbs. When rival voices speak, we need to listen to the voice of wisdom. But why does it matter? What's at stake? Here's the answer. The voice of wisdom leads to life, but the voice of folly leads to death. There are two voices. The one leads to life, the other to death. The Proverbs regularly put forward a word of wisdom and then, like good parents do, give a reason to heed the word of wisdom. And when they put forward a word of warning, they also give a reason. A reason to stay away from folly. We see that same pattern on display in this passage. The reason to heed wisdom, look at verse 9, is because it will be like a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. The garland was a symbol of victory and vindication. The pendant or the necklace around the neck was a symbol of honor and a symbol of life. The father calls his son to listen to his wisdom, but then he gives him a reason to listen. It is because following the way of wisdom will be attractive and it will lead to life. We see something similar in the warning. He calls his son to not listen to the fools. Then he gives a reason to heed his warning. It's because folly will lead to death. There's a contrast going on in verses 8 to 19. Proverbs regularly speaks of wisdom being of great gain. We'll see this in chapter 2. It's more precious than silver or of gold. It promises flourishing and it will deliver on that promise eventually. It is a treasure to be sought. That's one of the things we need to learn from the book of Proverbs. Wisdom is a treasure to be sought. But folly also promises treasure. Folly also promises silver and gold. The problem is, it's a promise that they can't make good on. They can't deliver on the promise. Let me illustrate this by just drawing your attention to what we see going on in this passage. The sinners are basically a gang. And it's interesting that the gang in Solomon's day is not much different than the gangs in our day. They promise prominence, acceptance, power, and prosperity. They say, if you'll join up with us, you'll be able to fill your house with all kinds of rich stuff. Sure, you'll have to shed a little innocent blood along the way, but it'll be worth it. Isn't that what you've always wanted? They make promises. But there's an irony here as well. Notice in verse 11, we read that they set an ambush for the people that they're going to rob. Look at verse 18. What they're really doing is setting an ambush for themselves. 
Verse 11, while they lie in wait for other people's blood. Verse 18, they really are lying in wait for their own blood. This is Solomon's way of saying crime doesn't pay. Eventually, injustice will catch up with you. The fool can't deliver on their promise. So in verse 19, he's given this example of this gang, but he applies it to every situation. He says, such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. Not just such are the ways of people who murder so that they can rob, but such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. The way of the world is in part about easy money. It's about getting ahead on other people's backs. It's about gain at other people's expense. It's about getting the things of this world while ignoring the Word of God. The way of wisdom by way of contrast does result in flourishing, but it involves suffering along the way. It's willing to experience personal loss in order for other people to gain. It's about following the voice of God's Word no matter what, instead of listening to the voice of the world. The one, friends, leads to life. The other leads to death. In Matthew 16, to recall what we've been learning in the book of Matthew for so many months, Jesus began to show His disciples that He, the wisest man who ever lived, must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So He will be crowned, but He first had to suffer. Peter rebukes Him. Jesus says, Get behind Me, Satan. You are thinking of the things of man instead of the things of God. And then He goes on to say this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then notice the connection to our passage this morning. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul, forfeits his life? 1 Corinthians tells us that the cross is foolishness to the world, but it is the very wisdom of God. Those who embrace the way of the cross will find life. Those who reject it will find death. They may gain the whole world, but in the end, they will forfeit their soul. When it comes to God's wisdom, this is what I want you to get from this point. There is a lot at stake. It's a matter of life and death. We'll explore the different aspects of that life and that death in the weeks ahead. But for now, just to know, it is a matter of life and death. That's why we must listen to the voice of wisdom and not the voice of folly. So I invite you to come prepared to listen up.
over the next few weeks to the book of Proverbs. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You that You have not hidden Yourself from us, that You have revealed Yourself to us in Your Word. In the prophets, supremely in Your Son, Jesus. But also, in very practical ways through these Proverbs, I pray that we would seek the wisdom that is from above. Seek to live our lives according to Your wisdom and for Your glory, according to Your grace, and for our good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.